And therefore, life is what happens before death. We live our life in the flesh. At some point, we'll die and we'll be dead. But Paul actually reverses that order. He says, no, the life we live in the flesh before we die with Christ, that's the state of being dead. What Ephesians calls dead in our trespasses and sins. Life in Adam, life according to the flesh, life before we die with Christ is life as death. And therefore, the, the path, the only path to being alive in the deepest sense is dying with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who loves for me. So being alive is life with death behind you hmm. rather than yep. ahead of you. Life Amen. with judgment, not in the future, but in the past. God has already said, you are righteous. You are my beloved child. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian Theology for your listening pleasure. And today is a book club episode. We have Jonathan Linebaugh on. He's going to be talking about his new book published by Erdman's, The Word of the Cross, Reading Paul. So we're going to jump into this conversation here in a moment. But as always, some show note reminders. If you look at our show notes, you'll see a link to Erdman's. Click that link. You can get this book for yourself. There's also some information about how to contact us through the show, how to find us, see our content, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and our email. There's also information on how to contact Peter directly. He's opening up his own church, Santa Ana Reformed, here in exactly a month based on our recording date. So I don't know based on the published date when it would be, but uh Contact him. He's got his own email. You can ask him questions about uh, and where to meet up and, and things like that. There's also a link to find a local Reformed church near you. So as we all know, the Reformed church is an umbrella of other smaller denominations, URC, PCA, OPC, among many others, that uh, hopefully you can find one close to you to visit or call home for in-person worship that we're called to do. And then, uh, and then there's information on becoming a bridge builder. So that, that's a group of uh, people that financially support our show. So without any more to say, I think I'll let Peter further introduce Jonathan Linebaugh. Yeah, we have Dr. Jonathan Linebaugh, who is currently a lecturer in New Testament at Jesus College at the University of Cambridge, but he's going to be taking up a post as a New Testament scholar and a Next, Anglican Chair of Divinity and Director of its, Angl of its Institute of Anglican Studies at Beeson Divinity School. Um, so we're kind of catching him in this like middle term, middle between two phases, jumping across the pond, um, coming back to the States. But it's, it's a great, it's a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Linebaugh. Oh, it's very great to be here. It's an honor to be with you, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So thank you. Yeah, about, absolutely. 
let people know they're listening what room you're in i thought that was really oh, interesting right. yeah. uh, well yes so maybe it is good that you caught me before we made the move as peter that's said right. we're, we're transitioning yes. back to the states that's where we're originally from my family and i but we've been in the uk off and on for 10 years now mm-hmm. seven of them at the university of cambridge and jesus college is actually the college that thomas cranmer who was mm-hmm. one of the english reformers one of the Protestant martyrs under Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, um, the main architect of the Book of Common Prayer. When he came to Cambridge, before he could really study theology, he had to learn Greek and Latin. And the room that's my college office in Jesus College is the room he learned his Greek Mm -hmm. and Latin in. So Mm -hmm. if we get to talk about Thomas Cranmer, we'll be doing it in an appropriate place. That's right. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we'll we'll have a couple questions based off of uh, Cranmer. And so I know we have some Anglicans listening to this too. So you guys will you also, uh, you also get to learn a little bit some some of this history behind it too. So you've, you've already kind of touched on it, uh, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, education, interests, and then what kind of led to this work? Sure. Uh, yeah, appreciate it. So I'm married to Megan and we have three children. And in some ways, my start in studying theology coincides with my time meeting Megan. We were at Messiah <laughs> College in Pennsylvania. Uh, mm-hmm. for our undergrad. And I got a degree in economics, mm. which I don't know if that served me in any way. I trust <laughs> that in God's providence, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I can't always see that though. Um, but about halfway through, I got really interested in studying theology. I had mm. honest questions for myself that I didn't know the answer to. I didn't really doubt what I believed, but I had big questions about why I believed what I mm. believed and why it mattered. And it was really that process that showed me both that studying theology was a meaningful way of asking those questions, that books, conversations, libraries could be a meaningful way of exploring why and what you believe. And at the same time, there was a sense of a call of vocation that this studying of theology was not just for myself, but was for the sake of proclaiming the gospel in some form. And this really comes together in one of Martin Luther's earliest Reformation writings. In 1518, he wrote a little treatise called For an Inquiry into Truth. Mm -hmm. That was the first half. That sounds very (laughs) academic. But then the second half was, and for the consolation of troubled consciences. Hmm. And it was that double sentence that sort of captured my vocation. I felt called to go make an inquiry into truth, but also I was doing it for the sake of preaching comfort to troubled consciences. And so I went off to seminary, not really sure if that would look like parish ministry or academic work. Still had lots of questions, was still unsure, went off to Durham University, where I did my doctoral work um, on Paul's theology in comparison with early Jewish literature. Came back, taught at Knox Theological Seminary for four years in Florida. And then after that, headed to Cambridge, where I've been for seven years before now heading to Beeson as the Anglican chair. So -hmm. it's always very much been an academic vocation as a form of ministry, understanding myself as a ministry of the word, research, if you like, as a, as a way of receiving the word. Mm-hmm. Remember what Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Mm-hmm. And I think about research like that. It's, it's a way of receiving the good news so we can then do the ministry of passing it on through proclamation. Hmm. No, I love it. Yeah, that's, I think it's a, it's, it's a really healthy way of looking at of academic ministry, that this is something that feeds the church, feeds people's mm-hmm. consciences, and is not just kind of in this high ivory tower doing its own thing. And the, the church is kind of lowly and doesn't really look at academics, but these two are, are married um, in a very, in a very real way. Um, so <clears throat> you've already kind of talked about this, your, your background and stuff, but more kind of towards this book too. And this book mm-hmm. is about some of Paul's epistles and some kind of themes throughout Paul's epistles. 
and Nick will kind of catch another theme on this too in his next question. But how did this uh, how did this book come about? Because it's not it's not really like a it's not a book that you kind of started and you wrote and then kind of gave to the publisher and told them to publish it. But it's kind of this amalgamation. It's all, all these different like um, articles that you published before with I think a couple new ones that you that you wrote for this book. So you can kind of talk about the process, how this book came about, and uh, what you're hoping to do with it. No, thanks. It's help, it's helpful to clarify if for no one else than for myself and you know for the publisher who recognized that this really was a book rather yeah. than just a collection of separate yeah. things. But nevertheless, quite a bit of the material in it did start as separate individual things. So there's some things that were published in academic journal articles, some things that were chapters in other books. There's a couple of completely new chapters. There's a new introduction, a new foreword. One of the chapters got sort of doubled in size. And so it was basically a rewrite. And what's really going on here is that, as the subtitle says, they're all ways of reading Paul. So one thing that holds it together is that every chapter in this book is looking at Paul, starting with Paul's text and trying to make some sense of what Paul's saying. But they're also held together by, I think, a sort of basic question. And this was the question that sort of kicked off my doctoral research a long time ago and is still driving me in many ways, which is what Paul says he was set apart for, what he says he's commissioned to do is to preach what he calls the gospel, Mm -hmm. the good news. And I've been asking for a long time in what sense Paul's gospel is both news, Mm. how does it stand out, how is he saying something that other people weren't saying, And how is it good? How is this news that he announces actually what Thomas Cranmer called a comfortable word, a word that raises the dead, sets the captive free, brings hope and healing to the hurting, to the sinner. And so I do that in three different ways. Section one is just, here's some readings of Paul. I take four passages of Paul and I do some interpretation and I try to make sense of them theologically. Section two, I put Paul in conversation with some contemporary literature. So I look at some Jewish texts like the Epistle of Enoch, which may not be very familiar to people, Mm -hmm. but it was a a Jewish text that had some influence. And then a text called the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a little closer to Paul's time. There's some debate whether Paul knew it or not, which isn't really the point. But I just do some comparisons some conversation to see that Paul both stands in a tradition, but he stands out within that tradition. And I keep saying, why? What makes him different? He's reading the same scripture. He's using the same vocabulary, talking about God's grace, God's righteousness, thinking about the relationship between Jew and Gentile before God. He's thinking about Israel's past, Israel's present, Israel's future. And yet at every point, he stands out in some surprising way. Hmm. And then the third section comes to the history of interpretation. And I look especially at the Protestant reformers. And I look at Martin Luther's reading of Paul and Thomas Cranmer's reading of Paul. And again, One of the things that's significant for me is that not just Paul, but in a major way, Paul was a source for when they were feeling that they were recovering the gospel as good news, Hmm. as a word that set the captive free and raised the dead. And so there's different methods in reading Paul in this book, reception, Mm -hmm. historical, um, comparative research, but there's a kind of fundamental motif that held the book together. And this is what the publisher actually helped me see was (laughs) this book is about one thing. You read Paul in multiple ways, but it's about one thing. And if I would summarize that, I might say that Paul announces the gospel as a merciful surprise Hmm. or 
a surprising mercy. You can put the accent wherever you want. <laughs> that, that's why the title is the word of the cross, because in first Corinthians chapter one, when Paul summarizes the gospel is the message we preach is the word of the cross. He's emphasizing that it's scandalous and it's surprising and it's shocking. Hmm. And it's that in two ways. One, the content of the message that it's a crucified Christ. He says is foolishness to Jews and it's a, or it's foolishness to Greeks and it's a stumbling block to Jews, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So it's shocking that the Messiah has been crucified and that's the content of the gospel. But it's not just who the gospel is about. It's also for whom the gospel is announced. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you were of noble birth. The gospel is for the low, the weak, those Paul calls the sinner, the enemy, the ungodly. And it's a word that creates the opposite. Where there was sin, it creates righteousness. Where there was death, it creates life. Where there was slavery, it creates freedom. And so the, the goal of this book in all three sections is to trace that surprise, to see it again and again as the kind of beating heart of Paul's theology as he encounters different situations, read different texts, writes to different communities. He's always trying to say this merciful surprise that God in Christ came for the sinner, that God in Christ came for the sufferer, that God in Christ came for those in captivity. And what God in Christ does is make alive, set free and declare righteous. I love it. Yeah. And before, before Nick asks his next question, which is, I think I mean, perfectly tied to what you're saying right now. Um, it is, it is really interesting. And I think really significant too, as, as I was reading through kind of middle portion of your book, cause you're talking about how Paul views this so differently than kind of the Jewish literature at the time where they assumed like some innocence from Israel. They assumed that there is, there's a good people and that the ones who are being um, punished were the ones who are justly being punished um, versus how Paul reads it, which is no, it's actually the, the, the sinners are rightly being punished or rightly being rightly, uh, righteous justice on top of them, but it's flipped in the gospel where the, the unjust are made righteous and the, the right, there is no righteous. There's only the unjust are made right. So I, I loved, I loved how you pulled some of these texts and how Paul, um, is reading, I mean, Jewish history different. It's like, that's, that's not what this is. This is, this is the, this is the unjust being made just. Not because they did anything of themselves, because God's word makes them just. Um, that's the thing that justifies them. So I, I loved people who are listening. I, I loved how this is brought out in some of these chapters. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and just one thing, and then happy to hear Nick's question, because I think it might be related. But one thing that's key there that you were just pulling out, Peter, is one of the things that happens when you do this comparative work is when I compare Romans 1 and 2, for example, mm -hmm. with Wisdom of Solomon 13 and 14. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the thing you notice at first is, wow, these are really similar. They're talking <laughs> yeah. about a, a history of human sin. Yep. And they say similar things about what human beings have gotten up to. They've worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Yep. That idolatry has led to immorality. Judgment is the final consequence of that process of idolatry. And yet, as similar as they are, there's a short but hugely significant difference, Yep. which is... What happens at the end of that in Wisdom of Solomon is he says, but we, O Israel, mm -hmm. we have not sinned. Mm -hmm. right? And they tell a long history of sin and they leave out things like the golden calf, for <laughs> yeah. example. Pretty significant events in Israel's <laughs> history. <laughs> yeah. 
So, and Paul gets to the end and says, therefore, we conclude that all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. So they're doing something similar, telling a history of mm. human sin. But Wisdom of Solomon's doing it to reinforce the difference between mm. Israel as the innocent and the Gentile world as the guilty, where Paul's actually doing essentially the opposite. He's telling the history of human sin to erase the difference mm. at the level of need before God. So as he says in Romans 3, all sinned and mm-hmm. lack the glory of God. And that's why I can say there's no distinction. Yeah. And so if there's going to be a judgment, it sounds like the only conclusion there could be would be condemnation. Yeah. But here, but here's where there's going to be another surprise. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just taking a moment to zoom out broadly and make a note for the audience. If you guys, if, if who Paul, who the Apostle Paul or even the Bible, Christianity is brand new to you guys. Good reference is if you go back and you listen to our conversation with Brad Bittner on Paul's epistles, it was quite a while ago. You might have to like scroll yeah, through. Like a year and a half ago we had that. No, like a year ago we had that one on. Yeah, that's that's pretty much Paul and Paul's epistles 101, who he was. Oh. Just to make that plug. Um, yeah. yeah, listen that to that one sense. and then come over here if you're like, who the heck is Paul? Yeah, yeah. So going into, I have kind of a double layered question. Um, one of them you probably already know. So I'll go, I'll go to that one first. And so a consistent theme through the, this book seems to be understanding of righteousness. So especially as it relates to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Yeah. So can you describe how you approach these verses in the context of Paul's letters? Yeah, thanks. So this is a big theme in Paul's letters, mm-hmm. uh, especially in Romans, the phrase, the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. And related phrases or related words show up in a lot of other places. So when Paul talks about righteousness, it's the same word in Greek that he's talking about when he talks about justification in, yeah. say, Galatians or something. So it's a theme that's not in every letter of Paul, but it's in some significant places in some significant letters. And it was one of the really interesting points for me to do some comparative work. Because righteousness language is all through the Old Testament, mm-hmm. Israel's scripture. It's in the Jewish tradition before Paul. It's in the Jewish tradition at the same time of Paul. It's something that everyone talks about. So talking about righteousness, and for that matter, talking about grace, is not unique to Paul. That doesn't make him stand out. Hmm. That situates him very naturally in his Jewish tradition as a reader of the Hebrew Bible and of its Greek translation. So no real surprises there. But what's surprising is what he goes on to say reveals the righteousness of God. Where do you look if you want to see God's justice or righteousness? And what actually happens when God reveals God's righteousness? So one of the texts I compare Paul with is called the Epistle of Enoch. And the main thing to know for this is that it was written to a community that was suffering what they perceived to be injustice. The people, the kind of us group of the text who thought of themselves as innocent or righteous were suffering. And the people that they perceived as ungodly or wicked who were oppressing them were being blessed. And the great promise that the epistle of Enoch makes is a day will come when God's righteousness will be revealed and then things will be made right. The righteous will be recipients of blessing and mercy and the ungodly will be recipients of judgment and condemnation. Hmm. So you might say that the message of the epistle of Enoch is, I know there's injustice now, but then the righteousness of God will be revealed and sinners will be condemned and the righteous will be justified. Mm. Mm. 
Now I say it like that because the yeah. way Paul says it in Romans 3, 21 is, but now, not but then, hmm. but now the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he says, all sin and lack the glory of God and are righteous through the grace and the gift that is in Christ Jesus. So if you want to know where to look for Paul to see God's righteousness being revealed, you don't have to wait and wonder what the last day will be like. You can look at what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the site where God reveals God's righteousness. And this is what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and also and equally to the Gentile. For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Mm. Now, Paul says that the prophets, the law, they witness to the righteousness of God. They point to it. They promise. They prepare for it. But if you want to know where it's actually demonstrated, mm. it's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And when that righteousness is revealed, it doesn't do what everyone assumed it would do, which is condemn the sinner. Mm -hmm. It condemns sin, but because it does that through the death of God's son, it actually saves the sinner. Mm. And so this, again, to use that language, is the merciful surprise of God's righteousness. God comes in Christ and reveals God's righteousness. He does the thing that God is promising to do, make all things right. But he does it in such a way that those who are wrong, those who Romans 5 says are weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, are the objects of God's saving mercy. Hmm. And this really makes Paul stand out. This is what Paul calls the justice of God and the grace of God. It's what God has done and what God has given in Jesus. And it's not something that comes and finds people who are righteous and sort of gives them a stamp that confirms that they are righteous. It's something that comes and finds people and a whole world that is unrighteous and through the gift of Christ creates what wasn't there, righteousness, life, forgiveness, and freedom. Right? Luther had this nice phrase, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. And that's one of those key Reformation insights that justification in Paul is not God confirming what's already the case, or even God slowly morally turning it into the case, yeah. but God coming as the creator in Christ and making it the case through his declaration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> before, yeah. Before Nick adds some, um, I just, I got to tell our- If our I may, audience. I want to uh, revisit a theme that you brought up earlier and maybe peel the onion back on it, if that's okay. And then Peter can go ahead and do his question. Uh, the, the title of your book, The Word of the Cross, mm. is uh, right off the bat in your book, you, you unpack the, the why you named the book that. Yep. And, and you go into 1 Corinthians one twenty three, and also uh, 2, 2, and 15, 3. But, um, you know, just kind of maybe for the audience explaining why that verse is connected and how it's so uh, you know, countercultural and supernatural, what really happened and, on, on the cross. And, and I think in first Corinthians one twenty three kind of explains that, but it may, I'll let you kind of go through that. Yeah, no, it's really helpful. I mean, yeah. 
it's interesting because none of the chapters in the book are actually about first Corinthians chapter one, Yeah, yeah. but it right. was also obvious to me that first Corinthians chapter one captured the theme of the book better than any other chapter mm-hmm. could with this phrase, the word of the cross, which really just celebrates and almost parades the surprise of the gospel that who the gospel announces as savior is one who was crucified on a Roman cross. And this takes a little bit of sort of thinking ourselves back through 2000 years of history in which the cross has become such a prominent and recognizable symbol of Christian devotion and Christian piety for understandable reasons. And remembering that it is an instrument of execution And in the Roman era, it is essentially a billboard for Rome's power and the way that Rome would dehumanize and um, humiliate the lowest in society. This was for the slave and this was for the non-Roman citizen rebel. And this is how you said, if you mess with Rome, you lose. And Paul says, when that event happened to this Jesus of Nazareth, God's righteousness was revealed. Even just in those terms, it's completely shocking, scandalous, and surprising. Mm. And yet then Paul pushes it one step further and says, when this Christ was crucified, it wasn't just this scandalous thing that was nevertheless for the right kind of people. He even says in Romans 5, 7 that for a good person, one might conceivably give their life. He can at least imagine that possibility that a self-sacrificial death for a person who's worthy of it would make a certain kind of sense. Mm -hmm. It would be heroic and self-sacrificing. But Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love like this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So it's not just that Christ died, as surprising and scandalous as that is all by itself. It's that Christ died for those who are unworthy, who are undeserving who are unrighteous. And this is another thing that really makes Paul stand out in his context. He interprets the cross of Christ, not just as the justice or the righteousness of God, but also as the gift of God. So he says that um, God did not spare, but gave, gifted his son. He says, Jesus is the one who loved me and gave, gifted himself to me. And he says, I don't nullify the grace of God, which is the death of God's son and using the language of grace puts Paul right in his Jewish context. It's a very ordinary word that grows out of Israel scripture and people in the Greco Roman world were talking about giving gifts all the time. But the thing that tended to hold all that diversity of celebrating God's grace together was that God gave God's gifts to people who were in some sense worthy recipients of them. Maybe they were morally worthy. Maybe they kept the law. Maybe they had high social status. Maybe they were intellectually impressive. Maybe they had done something for the country in military or political terms. But you gave grace to people who were fitting recipients. And along comes Paul and says, the gospel is Christ was crucified, surprise and scandal number one, and he was crucified as God's love and gift for the unworthy, the poor, the foolish, the weak, the alone, the abandoned, the captive, the sinner, the sufferer, the slave. It's an 
unfitting gift. It's given, to use a word that a New Testament scholar named John Barclay likes to use, incongruously. There's no match between God's gift and the worth of those who receive it. But this incongruous gift also does the impossible. But it comes to the slave and sets them free. It comes to the sinner and makes them righteous. It comes to the dead and says what Jesus said in John 11, Lazarus, come out, or little girl, get up. Mm -hmm. This is that word that raises the dead. That's the word of the cross. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's powerful. Cool. Yeah. I was, I was about this. I was about to say, usually I try to find a little snippet for an introduction um, before the episode. And usually it's, it's, it's relatively easy. It was like kind of a high point of each, of each uh, interview. And this one is going to be blessedly way too hard to find one single little snippet to find, to put onto the, to the front of this episode. I think this will be, I think this will both be incredibly encouraging for people who are kind of searching within the Christian faith or within kind of religion in general, figuring out like, where, where do I stand in front of God? How do I, how do I, how am I made right in front of God? I'm wondering, is there anything I can do to be made right, right in front of God? So I think these are incredibly helpful questions and answers. And then obviously the book, I mean, expands on this far more. Um, but even, even for myself too, especially helpful for me with some of your sections on, on Galatians, um, cause I'll be preaching on Galatians during the summer. Um, so reading this is kind of a, a good, helpful little primer. Uh, and I've read Barclay's book on the, uh, on the gifts, uh, his, his big 500, 600 page <laughs> book on this, which this is kind of a, a, help, a more helpful distillation of, of some of that stuff. Um, so I'll be preaching on this, but the, the last, the last part of your, uh, uh book is on Galatians and especially kind of how Thomas Cranmer, we talked about beginning this episode, and Martin Luther read this. So how, how do they, how do you interact with, with their readings of Galatians? How, how do they help us better read Galatians? Yeah. So there's a few ways to come at this, but I think one of the most helpful things, and this isn't unique to Martin Luther and Thomas Cranmer, but it's something you can find a lot by going into periods of church history where people are seriously reading the scripture and doing it for the sake of theology and for the sake of ministry and are doing it with understandings of scripture as God's word that is living and active. And when you have that kind of combination, what you get is people who both read the text carefully and closely. They think historically and theologically about it, like you would hope kind of any um, careful academic might be doing, but they also are attending to those words. And so Cranmer and Luther here are attending to Paul's letters as the word of God in the present tense. And they're listening to how Paul's gospel is and can be proclaimed today and tomorrow as the good news that it's always been. And so they're doing that work of translating from text to proclamation. They're receiving the gospel so that they can give the gospel again and again. There's a, a German theologian named Oswald Bayer, and he says that the task of theology, and certainly the task of interpreting the New Testament for the sake of preaching on Galatians, like you're going to be doing, Peter, is, as he puts it, to always preach the gospel anew, but to never say anything new. Mm. And it's this doubleness that you need to do. And there's something about the gospel that lets that happen. And one of the ways I think Cranmer and Luther are both really helpful on this, um, you know, so Cranmer basically summarizes Paul's theology by saying, hear what comfortable words 
our Lord Jesus says, and then he says, as St. Paul says, and can kind of point to sentences that he thinks captures this. He really loved 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Mm-hmm. He thought that sort of gets it. Um, but Luther also saw that especially Galatians was, a, was really helpful for thinking about proclamation because Paul was engaged in a dispute, which Luther knew was not the same as the dispute he was engaged in the 16th century. But nevertheless, they were both disputes about what is and what is not the gospel. And he found Paul a really helpful guide as he navigated this. So when Paul writes Galatians, he says that the Galatians are turning from the one who called you in grace and are turning towards another gospel. And there's plenty of debates and details about what exactly that other gospel is. It looks like it, it was devotion to Jesus plus observance of the Mosaic law in some sense. But the key point is Paul said, that's not the gospel. That's the other gospel. And he contrasts that with what he calls the gospel of Christ. And basically all of Galatians, which is full of all these kind of antitheses, this not this, but that, is him arguing against the other gospel and arguing for and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Mm -hmm. So when Paul says in Galatians 2, 15 following, which was very significant for Luther, a human being is not righteous by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, Luther said, there you go. That's Paul in one set of vocabulary, one set of imagery, summarizing the gospel. It's not works of law. It's not what you've inherited or what you've achieved. It is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so then Luther could turn and proclaim in his context, it's not going on pilgrimage. It's not works that have been invented by human traditions as Luther understood it. And he would say, if it's not even the law of God given through Moses, then how much more is it not all of these other human traditions and works, which may or may not be good, which may or may not be helpful, but they're not the road to righteousness in life. What is, is Jesus Christ and him alone. And so you can see how from there it flows things like grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Mm-hmm. They become ways of saying nothing but Christ is the gospel. And you basically only have two options. You have Christ and or not Christ. That's not the gospel. And you have Christ and nothing else. And that is the gospel. And Luther could sort of take that as a resource anytime he was engaging with proclaiming a text or critiquing a different theological position and say, is, is this not Christ or more than Christ? Because if so, it's not the gospel. Or is this just Christ? And if so, then it's the gospel. And I think much of Luther's theological work over the last 30 years of his life is just repeatedly doing that. And I think he learned that from Paul. Yeah, that points to the five solas really well. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> there's, there's just so much good stuff uh, in this book, in this interview that I, I mean, I really encourage people to not just kind of go through this and listen to it, but kind of dwell on some of these things, dwell on these truths um, as you're reading the book, as you're reading Galatians, as you're reading Corinthians, all this stuff, let, let, let this, let this seep into you. This is, um, I don't say this often, but this is one of those interviews I think that you should listen to a couple times um, to, to let some of this kind of dwell on you as, as you read this book. Um, as well. And then uh, another article, um, I've actually seen this referenced elsewhere, um, 
this is not the first time I've, I've, I've read about it in other books. Um, this is the first time I actually read the article myself, which is, which is really helpful to read the article for yourself instead of reading about the article. But it was chapter four, the speech of the dead, um, which people are like, is this like a Halloween reference? Like what's, what's going on with, with some of this stuff? It's on Galatians 2.20. Um, and Paul talks about he is not the one who's living, but Christ in him. And I think this would be incredibly helpful for, for our listeners, those looking at this and wondering, what does this first talk about? How is Paul using this? How can you die but still live at the same time? Um, so can you describe your approach to this verse and, and what this means for us? Yeah, well, in some ways, the title of it is an attempt to signal just how strange this is. So, <laughs> yeah. As you just said, the, the confession of Paul, and I think maybe that's the best way to read what it is, is Paul making a kind of confession that's true about him and true of all those who are in Christ, is I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you notice when you sort of attend to the history of people reading this sentence is that people who read it closely all say, this is a really weird way to talk. <laughs> yeah. you know, so Luther says, this is strange and unheard of. And the phrase, the speech of the dead, actually comes from St. Augustine, mm. a North African bishop uh, from the earlier church. And he says, this is the way people talk when they're already dead. Mm. So it's the speech of the dead. That's his phrase. You can only talk like this. I mm. no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. If you're speaking as one who's already died. And he says, I admit that's a strange thing to say, but that seems to <laughs> yeah. be. And so that's my kind of way into this is this is really weird. And actually, it's funny because if you look at sort of contemporary biblical scholars, not all of them, but some have basically said that this is too weird to even try to interpret. So E.P. Sanders, who's a significant uh, New Testament scholar, said uh, a few decades ago now when he was reading this, he said, this seems to be really important to Paul, very close to the core of what Paul thought the gospel was. Mm -hmm. Paul seems to have really believed it, that we had died with Christ, that we were united to Christ, that the life we have is the life of Christ. And he said, but I have no idea what this means, and I have no category <laughs> to propose. And yeah. so you, in one sense, you say, fair enough, you know, this is, this is difficult. But what happens if we, if we look at Augustine, if we look at Luther, if we go back into the history of the tradition and pay close attention to Paul, how is this good news? And that's what I was trying to hear was how is this strange confession one of the ways Paul announces this merciful surprise? It's clearly surprising, but how is it mercy? And basically what I concluded, and Luther was a huge help as I navigated this, was that we have to rethink three basic categories that we think we know what they are. Death, life, and what it means to be a person. What's the sort of source of our life. And so we tend to think that death is what happens after life. We'll live our life in the flesh, we'll die, and then we'll be dead. And therefore, life is what happens before death. We live our life in the flesh, at some point we'll die and we'll be dead. But Paul actually reverses that order. He says, no, the life we live in the flesh before we die with Christ that's the state of being dead, what Ephesians calls dead in our trespasses and sins, life in Adam, life according to the flesh, life before we die with Christ is life as death. And therefore, the, the path 
the only path to being alive in the deepest sense is dying with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who loves for me. So being alive is life with death behind you Mm. rather than ahead of you. Life with judgment, not in the future, but in the past. God has already said, you are righteous. You are my beloved child. Now you can live. So those get, those get mixed up. But it also mixes up our sense of how we would answer the question, who am I? Mm. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ. And so he seems to be saying mm. that if you want to answer the question, who am I? Who is a human being? What defines or determines their personhood, their worth? You don't answer that question in the kind of default mode, which is by looking at their biography or their biology, their pedigree or their performance. You don't answer it with reference to them. God's answer to the question, who is a human being? Who am I? What God sees and says when he looks at me, Jonathan, or you, Peter, or you, Nick, is answered by what God has done, is doing, and will do for you in Jesus Christ. God's love for you in Jesus is the answer to who you are. So basically, you can take Galatians 2.16, which says a person is not righteous by works of law, but through faith in Christ. And what Paul does in Galatians 2.20 is he essentially translates that into the language of personhood. A human being is not defined or determined by what they have inherited or what they have achieved. A person is defined or determined by what God has done for them in Jesus. Mm. We live as a gift of God's grace. Now, I will say, I think that's nothing but good news. There's a great line Bob Dylan says at one point, thank God I'm not me, which mm-hmm. is a sort of very strange way of talking that sort of mm-hmm. captures the spirit of this. And it means we're free. The, the lives we live, the history we have, the things we've inherited from our families and our cultures, the stuff we've accumulated, the Book of Common Prayer says the things done and left undone. Mm-hmm. Those don't have to carry the weight of our worth. That weight is carried by the one who said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We can look away from ourselves to know who we are. But one critique of that, and it's a critique specifically that's made of Luther sometimes, is, well, wait a minute. If God answers the question who a human being is by saying, don't look at that human being, but look at Jesus, does God actually love that human being? Or does he have to sort of hide that human being, sort of put Jesus in between? Does he ever look at and actually love you? Mm. And here I think is where the the end of Paul's phrase is really important because he says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live in the faith of the one who loved me and gave himself for me, which means that God doesn't love you because he sent Jesus for you, but God sent Jesus because God loved you. Mm. And so it, it sort of plays out like this, that if you want to say, who am I? Paul's confession says you can look away from yourself to the gift of God in Christ Jesus to know who you are. But when you look away from yourself, who you see is God in Christ looking back at you and saying, you are my beloved child and you, I am well pleased. So the source of our worth and our person is God's love for us in Christ. 
but God's love for us in Christ is still a love for us that was and will be stronger than death. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way of translating the good news, I hope, into terms that uh, touch some of the hurt that people currently have as they wonder who they are and what their value is and what answers those questions. It's a way of saying God does. And God's answer is, I love you in Jesus' name. Yeah, a couple of quick notes. What you're unpacking there reminded me of what Christ said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Mm. So yeah, there's a spiritual rebirth after you're physically born. Yep. And so that that was well said by you. And also what you're saying, it sounds like Paul kind of repeats this uh, um, in Philippians 121, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, one of the, the fun things about reading John 3 is maybe Nicodemus is the first person to get confused by this. So I was talking about people like Augustine or Luther saying, this is a pretty weird way to talk. But Nicodemus says, what, am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? I mean, what is going on here? It's a strange and surprising way of talking. But as you say, Paul can talk like this. He can rethink death and life. Which is better? Which comes first? In Romans 6, he can think about it with the language of baptism. Those of you who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So Paul doesn't think, okay, death, life, we all know what those mean. We'll somehow fit what God has done in Christ into the order that already exists. And he says, no, what God has done in Christ actually reveals the way things really are. And what we find is that it doesn't go life than death. It goes death than life. Mm. And the bridge between the two is the death of Christ that we are united to. Mm. I love it. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> this would be an encouraging interview or encouraging uh, encouraging conversation for those who are listening to it. I think that's going to be first and foremost in people's minds. Um, but if <clears throat> for for you, if, if there's if there's anything we that we missed that you kind of want to point out in the book that you really want to come across to our listeners or uh, any any major emphases that we might have missed that you're like, I, if we can really if we can push this on this book is, is something that you would uh, that you'd like our listeners to come away with. I mean, I hope what has come out, I mean, talking about the origins of the book probably made it clear that some of them had an origin in, you know, academic journals and book chapters. And there there are moments of the book that are more technical. There are moments of the book that are a little less technical, but it's it can be a fairly academic book. But I hope what's come out is that um, every sentence in it is written out of the conviction that they're significant for real people and real pastoral ministry, that they Mm -hmm. come out of real questions. They were my questions that kept me awake at night. They've been sentences that have set me free when I've been preaching sermons. Um, And part of the reason I think they do that, and one of these things that's the pattern of Paul, is that Paul is really, I think I say this maybe in the preface, he's he's an apostle of a double apocalypse, or that there's two Mm -hmm. revelations that he announces. You see this really clearly in Romans. He says, the wrath of God is revealed. All are under sin. All sinned and lack the glory of God. That's one revelation, one unveiling. It's something that we don't fully know unless God reveals it to us, Paul says. We have to find out who we actually are in terms of our need for God's grace. We feel it, but we don't always face it. It kind of simmers but Paul's proclamation 
lets it come to the surface and lets us deal with it honestly. But then the second revelation is the righteousness of God has been revealed. And it's those same sinners who are the recipients of God's saving mercy. Hmm. And what I think that that means is that right at the heart of Paul is this combination of honesty and hope. There's a kind of realism about the pain and the questions and the confusion and the suffering that can make up an actual human life. And yet the word of hope that Thomas Cranmer called the comfortable words is not just something that kind of meets or matches the pain, but it's a word that's even stronger than the diagnosis. So there is a diagnosis. We need Jesus, but there's a word of deliverance that's even stronger. God has given Jesus. And so the captives can dance freely. The tears can be wiped away. The sinners can be pure. And those who were dead can come out of their graves. And that, I think, is Paul's message. It's why he calls what he announces gospel good news. And to the extent that this book captures what Paul's saying, it's just an attempt to say over and over again, <laughs> hear what comfortable words St. Paul says, <laughs> and then to try to proclaim that gospel. <clears throat> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's really no better way to, to end on, on that note. So maybe if you can uh, plug where, <clears throat> where people can find you in some of your work and, and what you're up to, uh, faculty page, whatever it may be. And then if there's any projects that you have come in the future where people are like, I read this, this is incredibly encouraging. I learned a lot. Um, is there anything else I can read from Dr. Leinbaugh that'll help me out too? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, there's a couple other books and stuff out there. There's a, there's a book called God's two words, which is mm -hmm. about the distinction between law and gospel and the reformed and Lutheran traditions. There's a book called reformation readings of Paul mm -hmm. that I edited with a good friend named Mike Allen. And um, that looks at the reformers and the ways they read Paul. Uh, an easier way in without a price tag is I've done some <laughs> writing for a website called Mockingbird. And oh, yeah. Mbird.com. And there's, I've done various things for them over the years. But one thing you can see is most of the preface to this book, they, they ran a hmm. couple of weeks ago. Uh, so you could read basically the introduction to the book there. I actually think the introduction to my God's two words is there as well. So that would just be something you could find. Uh, by doing that. I do have uh, a book project underway. It's getting close, but getting close never means you know exactly when it will be done, but <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's actually on Galatians wow. 2, 19 and 20. And this theme of how Paul's gospel is good news in the context of real questions about human worth and value. So I'm sort of bringing Paul into conversation with contemporary questions about shame, anxiety, issues of self-harm, which seem to be generated by um, self-hatred in some cases, and trying to see that Paul can both help us compassionately understand the sources of that kind of suffering, but also has a word of hope in what he calls the gospel, that we can look to Jesus to find out who we are, and in looking to Jesus, find out that we're loved. I love it. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned those three books. This is, um partially on Urban's and, and other publishers, we're actually giving away all three of those books. So this wow. will come out on a, 
on a Thursday. And so this comes out, we're recording this on a Friday before it comes out, but this will come out next Thursday. So tomorrow, when you guys are listening to this, if you're listening to it on Thursday, if you're listening on Friday, you better get to our Twitter immediately because we're giving away all three books um, to, to learn more about uh, some of these readings and, and learn the distinction and learn uh, what righteousness is and, and what we need. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on, talking about your work, about the righteousness of God, the need we have as humans, who we actually are as humans, what death and life is and how that's actually switched. Um, all of these, I think these great turns of phrases, these great themes and, and phrases that that all center on the gospel. And I think people will come away both encouraged, but probably also wanting to buy the book. And I, I really do encourage people to buy the book uh, and read it. It's, it's some parts are harder, like you said. I think some parts are, are good too, um, a little bit easier to, to digest, understand. But you, I think you will actually come away with a better understanding of the gospel and what Paul is talking about. So thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully we can uh, connect soon. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Nick. And I'll look Thank forward you. to talking again. Yep. Thank you. Hey, a quick little plug for our church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, which is a United Reformed church plant under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church and Reverend Danny Hyde. We have a couple more Bible studies on Sundays, May 8th, May 15th, and May 29th. If you guys want to learn the location of this, please email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. And we are looking forward to, or prayerfully looking forward to, our first informal worship service. And then uh, the location will be announced relatively soon. So follow our Twitter at SantaAnnaURC to find out where this will be. We're looking forward to our first informal worship service, June 5th, near downtown Santa Ana. So if you'd like to be part of our worship service, either look at our Santa Ana URC Twitter handle or email us again at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com. If you or someone else you know would like to be part of a local Reformed church to experience this doctrine that we've been talking about, this theology we've been talking about, the finished work of Christ given to sinners by faith, accredited to us as perfectly righteous, his perfect obedience given to us by faith. If you'd like to see this, in the context of a local church, please do contact us. We'd love to see you there to do these three marches of the church, pro proclaiming the gospel, administering the sacraments, and exercising church discipline faithfully according to God's word. We'd love to see you there, the sweet fellowship and community that we're building, this core group that we're building, to eventually lead to a fully-fledged church. Again, we hope to see you there. We hope to see you there. God bless. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you write a review or instead of writing a review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing 
And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>